Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Michaela Kiner on the line. Hello, Michaela. How are you? Hi, Michael. I'm great. Thanks for having me today. Great to have you here. You've got a book, um, and I interview authors all the time, and I want you to share you know, what the book's about and, and also why in the world would you give up so much of your life to write a book? Because it is a time-consuming thing, to say the least. And I've had a few of them out there, and I go, okay, do I want to dedicate my entire life to this? And some days it feels like you do that. But you tell us about the book and um, a little bit about your backstory and some of the great things you do. Sure thing. So the book came out uh, just at the beginning of this year in January 2020, and it's called Female Firebrands. It is a book for both for women, professional women and their male advocates. And uh, I wrote it mostly because of my own experiences uh, as a woman working in both large and small companies, um, corporations, startups, and you know a lot of the challenges that that women face uh, as professionals, and especially if we're juggling both work and family. The premise of the book, though, was that I chose 13 amazing women who inspire me, and they range from founders and CEOs to um, social impact leaders and nonprofit, and just ask them each a series of questions about their challenges, but also how they got through them and how they came out as the successful and mission-driven people that they are. So I, I kept it really open. And then um, once I had met with all of these women, ended up writing about four themes, which you know, we, can, we can talk about a bit later. But two things that I tried to do to, to make the book a little bit more different and useful one was that it's written for individuals. So if you're a woman and you're being interrupted in meetings or you overhear or experience an inappropriate remark, this book is about what you can do in the moment and how you can prepare yourself to respond to that. Because so many women are left, I think, shocked and silent when those things happen. And if their companies aren't yet progressive enough to have training and have processes and policies for how to handle these things. I wanted to give women those tools. The other thing that was really important to me is that men are such a big part of this conversation. And many of my bosses, sponsors, mentors, and advocates um, have been men. And yet I hear a lot of men saying they're not sure whether or how to enter this conversation, how they can advocate for their female colleagues. And so um, specifically at the end of each chapter, I included checklists. And one of those is a checklist for male advocates about some easy and approachable ways to get involved and start speaking up. It's amazing you have those checklists on there. It's one of my favorite things about books, and not that I've necessarily done it, but I'm doing it with a new book that I'm writing. So apologies for the you know, the joke about why in the world do you write a book? Here I am writing another one. Uh, but I love that because what it does is it helps kind of summarize, okay, what have you just read? Because too often you know we read through things and we don't necessarily retain everything. So it, it gives you kind of a, a highlight thing. And I love the fact that you have you know, the that information for men to follow to help, you know, their, their colleagues uh, that are female in, in this type of situation, because 
when you help each other, it makes things easier. And I think, you know, one of the things that you had mentioned in, in the pre-show was, especially now, not, you know, during the middle of a pandemic, but just at all times, the concept of being resilient in, in life and in work is so crucial. And, and so many times we get beaten down because of a variety of different situations. And if we don't have that strong resilience within ourselves, it's easy to throw in the towel or just get disgruntled or leave organizations or, or burn out. And I know we talked about that. We'll, we'll chat about that in a minute. Uh, it, it's important for each of us to have you know, some resilience. So, you know, what are some examples that you, that you discovered when you're writing the book and, and some things that you've you know, implemented in your own practice of, of living and, and how to be more resilient? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Women are so often in a primary caregiver role, even when um, both partners in a couple are working full time, the women will take on far more of um, childcare and domestic responsibilities. Women also often find themselves um, caring for parents or caring for elders. And it's just really interesting how many women um, feel that self-care is selfish what I loved about the women that I interviewed is that I think in order to get where they are today, most of them had to overcome that thinking or find a different approach that resonated better with them. And really the common thread was that we've got to take care of ourselves. And many people use that analogy of putting on your own oxygen mask first before helping others. But just this idea that if we wear ourselves down and are you know, afraid and exhausted, we, um, we really aren't in a position to, to take care of others. And so bringing that importance back to self-care. I also think, and this is interesting as we've been looking at resilience right now in the time of the pandemic, because you know, virtually every person in the world, I think, is experiencing this exacerbated um, anxiety, stress, and uncertainty. And, um, you know, if you go out on Instagram, I looked at the number, but, you know, there are multi-million uh, posts with the hashtag resilience. And, you know, these are like beautiful, smiling uh, people and inspirational quotes. But as I've been talking to a lot of women, I know, you know, our version of resilience right now, it might just be getting through the day. It might just be I got up, I got my kids up, I helped them with their homeschool, I, you know, relatively got my own work done, and I got some dinner on the table. And uh, that's okay. You know, I think right now, in fact, that's something to feel good about, because there's so much going on. It's um, just the world, just reading the news alone, and, and trying to internalize and kind of cope with current events in and of itself is exhausting. And so finding time to then be productive and, you know, take care of family, et cetera, is, it's really a success. And it's something like, I want people to feel good about that right now that says, hey, if that's all you're doing, more power to you, right? Because you're, you're holding it together and, and that's become an, a big challenge for a lot of people right now. Yeah, I'm seeing it uh, uh, with work, working from home, you know, that I saw a study recently that 40% or actually there's been a 40% increase in the hours work on average for people. Now, people were working a lot longer hours before the pandemic. Okay, let's add on 40% more. Toss in, well, congratulations, you're now a full-time school teacher. You've got your partner, a spouse, you know, whomever, working at home with you as well. So all those dynamics are kicking in. Be proud that you can accomplish anything right now. 
we're in the middle of a pandemic, okay? Now is not the time to focus on being perfect because you can't be. That's just going to be failure. You're going to be stressed, burned out. You're going to end up in the hospital, which is the last place you want to be right now because it takes away resources to address the people that are truly sick with COVID-19 or other ailments. You don't want to add yourself into that mix if you don't have to. So I agree with you. It's just there's so much pressure that people are putting on themselves often. Uh, yes, there's some pressures from work and we could spend a week talking about mismanagement and and eight billion Zoom calls and all of that type of situation. But it, at the end of the day, people just need to realize, let's do what we can do. If you don't get it all done, it's okay. The world's not going to collapse on you. Uh, the schools aren't going to be, oh, you didn't finish this assignment. It's, you know, it's going to be a case where these things are going to be fine. And I always joke about this because I have a lot of people that are in the education business that are family, friends, and whatnot. And I tell them, it's like, all these parents are putting so much pressure on themselves to educate their kids. By the middle of May, every teacher is just as ready for summer break as the kids are. So it is, you know, scale down. I know the school boards and administrators don't want to hear this, but it's, it's cinema one and two time for a lot of these kids because they just put on movies because they're done. They're just like, the kids aren't going to pay attention. It's too warm and all that. And they just kind of ease into the school year. Yes, there's exams and whatnot. Uh, but, and I didn't mean to digress on, you know, bashing on education by any stretch, but again, parents have to pretend or I should, they shouldn't pretend that they're a school teacher. Most of them aren't do the best you can give your kids the education that you can. Anything that needs to be corrected can be corrected in the next school year whenever the kids go back to school. Um, don't worry about it. It's, you're not going to stunt your child's growth because you didn't get through all 18 lessons in this math part. They'll pick it up. Don't worry about it. Just focus on your own well-being and your health. So I'll get off my education soapbox on that. Uh, I think one thing, too, and you'd alluded to in our earlier conversation, too, is with resilience, if you don't have it, you can burn out. And you'd mentioned you know, your own corporate burnout story. So I'd love with you to share the audience with or share with the audience, I should say, um, what, what kind of experience you had with burnout back in the corporate days. Sure, absolutely. So I spent the first 15 years of uh, my professional career working in large corporations and some pretty, uh, I guess I would say, you know, intense and uh, fast-paced organizations as well. And I think when you start your early career in a company like that, you don't necessarily know that that isn't a norm everywhere, or you don't know what other options and opportunities are out there. So throughout the course of um, having both my kids, I was working full time and, you know, really was kind of climbing that corporate ladder. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I would say I found my own version of balance. I, um, I had both of my kids when I was working at Microsoft and, Sometimes I would talk to other moms who are working there and they would describe themselves as, well, I'm a bad mom because I did this. You know, I put my kid in front of Disney while I caught up on email. 
And it was something that resonated with me. And I thought, you know, I, I enjoy my career. I want to work really hard at the same time. I will make a change before I ever feel like I have to say those words that, you know, I'm a bad mom because I did X, Y, Z. And so that, that was a good lesson for me early on. At the same time, though, I think I reached a breaking point in a couple of different companies when I found that that my own version of balancing work and family was just breaking down. And, you know, I was um, too exhausted when I got home or I was spending too much time between the work and the commute that I just felt like I wasn't seeing my kids enough. And there's a piece of that that for me was in that first year with each kid. You know, I just think the first year is really hard and exhausting and it's a learning curve. And at that time, at least, there just wasn't a lot of flexibility in these big companies. There was very little in the way of work from home. Um, part-time schedules you know, didn't feel like an option. And so that was a challenge. And then I think even after that first year, you have you know, kids just demand flexibility. You want to pick up or drop off. You want to get to a school event or uh, a play or a soccer game. And a lot of these things happen between those core nine to five working hours. So for me, I, you know, kind of juggled both as best I could. I worked really long and hard. And then when my kids were four and seven, we moved to India. I went on assignment and lived in South India for three years with my husband and and the two kids. And um, that was a job that required travel, which I knew full well. But I ended up traveling back to the US 20 times in three years. And then I also traveled domestically at least twice a month. Um, And even saying that now, I can't believe physically that that I did it. I don't think I could do it again. But, you know, when you're on that kind of a wheel and there's there's also there's a lot of adrenaline when you're keeping that busy. And so, you know, I I made it through and and had a good experience. It was really only when we returned to the U.S. that I I felt like I kind of tanked. You know, I just crashed and it was like all of that busyness and, and fatigue caught up with me. And really, you know, you asked about writing a book and what, what would prompt you to write the book. But um, we were sitting in the car. It was, uh, you know, just after we had moved back to the U.S., my daughter was in the back in her car seat. And she kind of launched into me with this series of questions that was like, why are you never home? Uh, how come you don't know my friend's phone numbers? Why is dad the only one that drives me to school every day? And that was a pivotal moment for me because she was asking those questions. She was seven. And I thought, you know, those are really good questions. And I probably need to make a change to actually change the truth that is rooted in those questions. And I did. And and that was when I left um, my, my corporate job at Amazon and decided to move into startups with this feeling that if I'm in a smaller organization and I'm responsible for a smaller, kind of more confined executive team, then at least I can be where I need to be. You know, sometimes when you're working in a big company, you feel like you're supposed to be in three places at once. You're supporting multiple leaders. Um, and that really proved true to me. I, I found a lot uh, greater balance working with some smaller and younger companies and uh, ended up going out on my own. But um, yeah, I, de- I definitely... I. I think what I experienced was that burnout is real. You know, if I would say, what did I learn at the end of that journey? It was that burnout is real and it's both physical and mental. And it's not about just being tired. It's not just about, you know, I need a nap on Sunday. It was really um, kind of a, 
an ongoing state of fatigue that required a rift and doing something very different in order to recover from it. Yeah, it was very similar to my burnout story, although I wasn't working for a big corporate organization at, at the time, but it's still the fatigue part is just, that's the big thing. You know, you, you, you spend so much time doing everything you did in the travel. I mean, I, I was tired just with you explaining me the type of travel you were doing. I'm like, like wow. I mean, a, a single trip over three or four days is one thing, but you know, that many trips because you know, for anybody that has a globe, from India to the United States is not a 90 minute flight. Okay. Uh, it's, that's a long, long haul. And even in you know, the size of India, you know, your flights, I'm, I'm sure in that country weren't, weren't necessarily short either, depending on where you were going. So um, yeah, it, it's one of those things where that, that takes a toll on you and unaddressed, it just lingers and you could take, you know, a year's worth of Sunday naps and it won't make a dent in it because it's just eating at you. Now you mentioned earlier, there was four points that you wanted to make uh, regarding the book. So I'd love to hear uh, what you have to share about that. Yeah, thank you. It was really interesting to me because I, you know, when I launched into the book and when I chose the questions that I would ask the women, I had some theories <laughs> about what you know, what might pop, what might jump out, and and what might be common, um, and and in some cases I was right, and then in some cases I was very surprised. So, if I start with uh, where I was right, there's a chapter that's called hashtag Mom Two, which is actually something that was coined by one of the women in the book, and this is all things pregnancy and parenting in the workplace, which was a challenge when I had my kids, and it's a very similar challenge today, although I'm really encouraged that there's more support and resources for parents now than there were before, although I I think um, there's much more that's needed. Two chapters that really surprised me. One was that I ended up writing an entire chapter about privilege, and that was both white privilege and male privilege. And I guess when I set into writing this book, I, I never thought I'd be writing about privilege, although in hindsight, because I was writing about women and because I also interviewed a very diverse group of women, it shouldn't have been a surprise. I will say, though, as a white woman, um, I felt challenged in writing that chapter and writing about a lot of things that I hadn't personally experienced, not being a person of color. And um, I finally got the wisdom, I guess, to reach out to a colleague of mine, Aiko Bithia, who's a Black woman, and at the time, she was the head of diversity and inclusion at Fred Hodge Cancer Research Center, and she ended up collaborating with me on that chapter, which I was, I was extremely grateful for, and I think without her, I would not have felt comfortable uh, having that in the book. Um, another huge surprise was female rivalry. And while I knew that there's competition between women and I knew that it can have sort of a different vibe or a different feeling than competing with men, I was very surprised that all of the women I interviewed had a lot of stories and some really hurtful stories about how they had been treated by uh, women bosses, women colleagues, and, you know, using the phrase of like stabbed in the back, I was thrown under the bus, people uh, gossiped about me. Even a story where uh, Steve Johnson, who was a consultant, she came into uh, a meeting room, she had just joined the company, and one of the women accidentally had her email up on the screen. And these were vice presidents. And this woman had announced her as 
the big new pregnant woman who's going to be joining our team. So, you know, yeah, things that are just um, sort of un- unthinkable and uh, unimaginable, really, in, in this day and age. Yeah, it's alarming. And I know we both know Marilena Falaris and, you know, her book that she wrote, you know, the stories in it um, or were appalling to me. Now, have I seen some of those things? Yes, but oftentimes when when you have women that are in quote-unquote competition with each other, um, the things that are said um, were quite alarming to me, although I've you know seen it from a male side of things, but it's different. There's, uh, it, it just has a different appearance to it, and it may be from my own observation uh, of things, but yeah, it's it's alarming that that's still happening. You know, here we are in the middle of 2020, and we're still dealing with you know all the, the situations that we're facing in the world and in the corporate setting. And it's going to be really interesting too, especially with work and what that looks like going forward. Because you had mentioned you know when you initially worked for Microsoft and working remotely really wasn't an option back then. You know, I, I thought, boy, you must be a little bit upset now because they basically said, yeah, everybody can work remotely, no big deal. And you're like, you know, where were you back then? You know, but, you know, different times and different needs apparently. But it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the work dynamic is with workplace culture and all this because I think a lot of organizations may consider you know, having more and more remote type situations. So it's going to be interesting to see how the human dynamic is when it comes to competition amongst coworkers and everything else. I think so. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, as as a male leader, it can be hard to spot or understand that female rivalry. I think sometimes it can be hard for women too. You know, it's, it's covert in a different way. And so if I compare it to, um, you know, Me Too, for instance, people uh, have come at least to recognize and we're familiar, right, with these stories and dynamics of that type of harassment in the workplace. I think female rivalry can be just subtle enough that sometimes it goes undetected and it's much less talked about. And so I, I love what Marlena did by writing, you know, a lot on sort of that, the personal side um, of women competing with other women and, and why we need to outgrow that and really get better than that. And I think those relationships between women are at the heart of it. And so if we can strengthen the personal relationships, the family relationships, then we can strengthen the workplace relationships as well. Your comments about the future of work, you know, this this is something that we're all watching and wondering about right now. And I know, especially the larger organizations um, that I get a chance to work with are very much thinking that many people may never return uh, to the physical office. I think a lot of people really look forward to a hybrid where they can work from home as much as they choose and take advantage of that flexibility, but also be able to drop in or come to a meeting because people do miss that, um, just the camaraderie and connection that we have with our colleagues. But um, what I like about it is I don't think anyone is planning to just go back to normal. Everybody's reevaluating now what can be better and what can be different about the way that we structure work. And I think it's going to be a huge benefit to a lot of people. You know, working parents is is one group, but so many people want more flexibility than we've had. Well, with our aging population too, there's so many people that if they're not caregivers for their parents, they will be. And having that flexibility to take care of 
doctor appointments or even young kids, you know, taking them to doctor's offices or going on field trips or anything like that, that flexibility comes in and, you know, you know, harmonized working remotely type of environment. I hope employers will be a little bit more open to the things that they need to be open to. Yeah, I think, I think they will. And, you know, one silver lining that has come out of everybody working remote is that, where there were um, people who were real skeptics who didn't believe remote work was possible or didn't think that remote work was real work, um, that it couldn't be effective or it couldn't be efficient, are seeing now that it can be, and that in some cases it can be even more effective than it was. Or, you know, you, you and I were talking about travel and there's business travel, there's travel to speak and, and go to conferences. And, you know, sometimes that's a great use of time. I think people are also going to see now some, you know, why fly, why make a 10 or 15 hour flight uh, to go to one or two days of meetings, maybe something that can be done virtually and it's better uh, for work-life balance. It's better uh, fiscally for companies and, you know, frankly, it's better for the environment as well. So I I believe that we're all going to be a lot more thoughtful as we go through this returning to work. Yeah, I agree. It's going to be some interesting times and I hope that everybody remains open-minded about it and and not think about, you know, trying to go back to the way things were because I have no problem saying this, the things that were happening before all of this weren't really working. And I think this is definitely an opportunity for, for many organizations and individuals to take a deeper look within and go, okay, what makes sense? What can we do differently and still be able to deliver what we need to deliver to our clients and customers and, and have a, a better work environment for everybody involved. So, Michaela, I've loved our conversation today. Where can people find out more about you and this awesome work that you're doing? Yeah, perfect. Uh, we are on social media. So LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me. Um, you can find my company, which is called Reverb, and also the book, Female Firebrands. And I'll definitely have that in the show notes. So, Michaela, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you and this awesome work you're doing. Thank you, Michael. So good to meet you. Likewise. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of the Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.